Hey Grinders, Emery again. This week we're releasing some very special bonus episodes of discussions that Joe and I had at State of the Net 2018, the largest internet policy conference in the country, hosted last week in Washington, D.C. by our parent organization, the Internet Education Foundation. Today we're continuing the releases with one of my all-time favorite discussions of the day, where Joe and I got to talk with Sonia Kelly of Freedom House about the state of internet freedom around the world. Sonia Kelly is the director for Freedom on the Net, a project of Freedom House that assesses global internet freedom and gave us our favorite quote of the day. Stay tuned and let us know what you think about China's continual negative iteration. I found this discussion completely fascinating and we really hope you do too. So remember to keep it tuned right here all week as we have more excellent interviews just like this coming all week, including discussions on fake news, disagreement over net neutrality, and cybersecurity at the Olympics. So enjoy our chat with Sonia Kelly at State of the Net 2018. Hey, Tech Policy Grinders. Uh, this is Joe Jerome sitting next to Emery. We're still here at State of the Net talking to people about awesome stuff in tech policy. Um, we are actually joined at the moment by Sonia Kelly. Uh, she is the director of Freedom of the Net at Freedom House. Uh, she was on a session here at State of the Net on the big provocative question of the day um, of whether is the internet disrupting democracy? So, Sonia, I guess that's the question we can pose to you right now. Is the internet disrupting democracy? Well, the internet is certainly changing democracy, and in some ways it's changing it for the better, but in many other ways it's changing it for the worse. Um, let me just backtrack and mention that uh, I work at Freedom House where I evaluate the state of internet freedom in 65 countries. Hmm. So what we do is we look at different policies, whether that be blocking and filtering, we look at what people say and do online, whether they get arrested or attacked for those things, and uh, we collect a whole lot of data on an annual basis, and then we um, then uh, assert what the annual trends are. So uh, when we look at all of our findings throughout the year, we see many scary things. This year, for example, uh, we wrote extensively about how governments are using the internet to uh, manipulate and undermine democracy. So obviously that's something that's quite worrisome. In fact, while a lot of governments uh, and a lot of people here in the United States are focused on Russian manipulation of the elections here in the US, one of the things that we have observed is that this is a worldwide trend. In fact, over the past year alone, uh, elections were influenced uh, in 18 countries throughout the world. Mm. So again, something quite worrisome, and it really comes uh, at the core of democracy is, because if people can't elect their uh, leaders based on credible information, then we can say that you know basic processes are being undermined. So that's just uh, one way that is clearly negative. But at the same time, throughout the years, I know that I have personally observed and collected data on so many examples how the internet has actually brought greater transparency uh, even to the countries uh, that have traditionally been some of the most oppressive countries uh, throughout the world. I've come across examples where even officials in Saudi Arabia were fired or had to respond uh, because people pressure them through social media, through Twitter, for example. Even looking at, in Saudi Arabia, women's uh, campaign to enable women to drive, uh, you know, that's something that women's rights activists have been pushing for decades. But uh, I think kind of the last straw in that battle was actually their ability to uh, push it on social media to post the videos 
of women driving and really kind of breaking some of the social norms, which then uh, led the government and the royal family to loosen up some of those restrictions. So we are seeing in many ways the incredible potential of the internet, but at the same time, many of the governments realizing what that positive force is, they're then uh, coming up and cracking down on all of these positive things. So how do we push back against that? I mean, is there a message you have for governments or advocates or people on the ground to push back against? Well, uh, absolutely. So it seems like that we really need to uh, support grassroots uh, internet freedom organizations okay. in many of these countries around the world. Hmm. Um, you know, we've seen particularly over the last five years, many governments actually legislating on uh, how the internet and on, on internet speech and on surveillance. And uh, a lot of people see internet policy as something that's tacky that they don't necessarily understand. So we've seen in many places, you know, legislation that deals with credible uh, and serious issues like cybersecurity suddenly have these provisions where, you know, which say, you know, uh, the type of, um, let's say, terrorist speech is prohibited, this or that. But by the way, here is an am amendment that if you criticize the king of my country, you will go <laughs> right. to jail for 15 years. So, you know, we're constantly seeing these amendments slipping in. Sure. So uh, actually supporting civil society in these um, countries actually combat that legislation uh, is really crucial in, in this effort. Yeah, it's, it's clearly a very complex issue with lots of different moving parts, and I think that it's maybe even too broad of a question in the first place, right? Because as you said, Sorry. like, the <laughs> no, no, not that you're personal. No, the, the idea, the idea right. of is, you know, is uh, technology good for democracy? Because like you said, it's clearly good at helping grassroots organization and, you know, activism maybe, uh, we can make that jump as well. But at the same time, it sounds like the cybersecurity implications and maybe the, the surveillance infrastructure that is necessarily established with technology is makes it di more difficult to have elections. Yeah, absolutely. And just the issue of surveillance. I mean, of course, surveillance can be used for very legitimate law enforcement purposes. But what we've seen in a number of countries, whether that be Thailand and Russia or China or Vietnam, is that governments without any checks and balances are actually using their security and surveillance apparatuses to uh, observe what their political opposition is doing, what human rights activists are doing, and then uh, using that information that they collect uh, without any checks and balances to imprison them, to attack them, or retaliate in mm. many other ways. But at the same time, I mean, we s not to paint it with like overly simplistic brush, but the folks that are shutting down elections right now in the name of their, you know, in their government, they were trying to disrupt those elections before technology, right? Exactly. Is, is the technology making it significantly cheaper or easier for this kind of disruption, or is it just making it more trackable? Uh, well, I think that, uh, so, uh, so many of those countries, I mean, uh, they had, they, they did not have free and fair elections. Right, and I, th right. I think like that's the bottom line. So then uh, what technology enabled was actually for people to inform one another where, when irregularities happen. So in the past, you know, uh, 
uh, authorities in places like you know Thailand or Vietnam, you know they could uh, they could cheat and you know they can say hush hush and no one's going to know about it. But you know with the internet, you know you can easily take evidence. You can you know take a video or take a picture, circulate it, and suddenly the entire country is aware of the problem. So then, what when that happens, then many of the authorities then feel threatened, and then in response they either block many of the websites or many of the tools, or they shut down the internet altogether, what, what we have seen in many countries actually over the past few years. Hmm. Um, do you, is there anybody doing, a, any, I guess I want to say any government doing a particularly good job? Um, I know, so at, at the Center for Direction and Technology, we've sort of been watching um, some of the hate speech stuff in Europe with alarm just because it's overly That's broad. Right. Um, there's a lot of just confusion going on in the United States right now, and I always feel like at least Western Europe, the United States were sort of internet leaders. Um, has anybody else sort of stepped up to the plate? And well, um, it's really interesting because Estonia, for example, ranks as number one uh, in our survey on Go a Estonia. country. Exactly. Yeah. And I know for a lot of people who are not in this field, they are surprised. Well, Estonians, don't they get public-private key pairs instead of social security numbers? Uh, exactly, exactly. Awesome. So, <laughs> I, and I mean, to me, Estonia is such an incredible story because, uh, you know, here is a country that was part of the former Soviet Union. And after they declared independence, they actually realized that they're a country that doesn't, is not necessarily big or doesn't have, <laughs> you know, some super, you know, like supernatural resources like oil. <laughs> so they, they really took introspective look and said, well, we are going to actually invest in information technology and that's going to be our thing. So uh, they have created this incredible infrastructure, which then actually ended up getting strengthened even more after cyber attacks uh, perpetrated by Russia about 10 years ago. Right. So they had these massive debilitating cyber attacks that attacked their uh, government offices, their banks, and uh, after that they actually used it as a lesson and they invest invested so heavily in cybersecurity that they became actually one of the world leaders when it comes to this. So so then you know you have this tiny country now being a leader in, in many of these issues. So I, I like I don't know nearly enough about Estonia, only that I am very impressed by it. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little more about technically or you know policy-wise what they've done and how they what lessons can we take from Estonia and, and what should we be implementing? And can I interrupt? I, so maybe I'm missing a story here. Did they have a breach? They have biometric identifiers, right? Was was there a breach of that recently, or is that something I'm making up? Um, I yeah. don't believe that there there was a breach of that. So they have this uh, national ID system and. Uh, and essentially a national ID key. So basically as part of, so th their entire government system is online and each citizen can then access it and see their public records. So basically you can go to your national system and like you can see everything from your grades, like when you were like in kindergarten, kindergarten to, you know, to like your health records. Mm. And- uh, In one big place? In one big place, oh. which sounds extremely <laughs> scary. Yes. Yes. Which sounds, so it's extremely scary, but uh, you know, they seem to be pretty proud of their system because they have uh, built in kind of checks and balances in terms of, you know, in terms of security checks, but then also kind of balances in terms of like how government may or may not access that information. Okay. Hmm. So for example, like if the police ever wants to access this, 
then you as a citizen, when you log in, you actually have the record that like the police actually accessed and like the, the date and time <laughs> of that. Is there, is there any exception for so, national security purposes? So apparently the, that record like needs to appear then like within three to six months. Okay. If, if So there can be a delay for national security purposes as opposed to immediately. But essentially that still has to come within a particular time frame, which is pretty incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And apparently if, um, if the government then accesses this and uh, they don't find anything, then they actually need to issue an apology letter that they can <laughs> access nice. this. Exactly. Oh, that is laughable in America. Yeah, like it's the idea so is literally right. laughable. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, to me, I have to say that although I've heard Estonian cybersecurity specialists make points that, like this, you know, that they have built layers and layers of security in this, I have to say it makes me uneasy, like, regardless of how democratic <laughs> their government right, is, right, I yeah. mean, it is a subject potentially to threats. So, um, so I, I think that could be another discussion. But in, in many ways, uh, you know, it is quite impressive system. Oh, sure. All right, and definitely. so let's go to the other end of the list. Yes. Who so should we be most concerned about in the internet freedom world? So yeah. among the 65 countries that we examine, China comes in as the last. And, <laughs> um, and China is such an interesting place, I think, for us um, analytically as well, because it really has the most sophisticated apparatus of both censorship and surveillance. But then at the same time, they have become so adept in using the internet to promote economic growth. Right. So then, you know, it, it is a place where people can go to prison for, you know, for 10 years or more for, you know, criticizing the Chinese Communist Party or, you know, where we had seen people in Tibet, for example, being imprisoned simply for pulling up a picture of Dalai Lama in the cyber cafe. Wow. Uh, but then, you know, as I mentioned, you know, uh, we've seen uh, technology rapidly evolving and that's the level of innovation there is actually quite scary. So has that score gotten worse over time or is it on a trending better or I mean? So, uh, so uh, they are consistently innovating in a negative way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so. that's a perfect. Oh, I love that sound bite. I've never used that. So. Oh, I, that's just great. It has so much applicability to all sorts yeah. of conversations. Yeah. Negative yeah. innovation. I like yeah. it. Innovating in a negative direction. Yeah. That's right. Well, I mean, just, just looking at some of the new policies, uh, for example, recently China passed a new, new uh, cybersecurity policy which, uh, among other things, mandates that uh, all data pertinent to Chinese citizens now has to be stored uh, in China, in mainland Ch China, which so is actually- data localization Exactly, law. data localization laws, which is presenting a lot of headache for uh, foreign companies that are operating in China. But, you know, this entire cybersecurity policy is actually one step forward uh, to this kind of like a new social credit system yeah. that China is uh, hoping to implement actually by year 2020, where all citizens uh, will essentially be graded based on their internet activity. So in the same sense that we in the United States have a personal credit score, in China, people are going to have this social credit so score. I think that's fascinating. And I think in my space, my initial gut reaction is this is going to be used for ill. But I guess if I can be play devil's advocate, that sort of using technology for a, a scoring of a person could have a lot of benefits. Uh, Emery looks shocked. <laughs> I am shocked, and I am going to well, allow you to elaborate. <laughs> I, I just, you think about, we haven't even discussed things like like hate speech and, and bots and the way yeah. bad actors use the internet for ill. Um, 
these sorts of tools are sort of a... A, a bot a, killer. It's a, it's a policing mechanism in some respects. And, you know, the story that I've heard in China is, you know, people have been announced, there have been announcements on the train where, you know, if you don't follow the rules or you make too much noise on the train, it'll negatively impact your score. Well, you know, if I'm taking the, the, the silent car on the Acela or the Amtrak <laughs> and someone's talking on their phone, Shouldn't there be a reputational hit there? Uh. <laughs> Again, I'm playing devil's advocate. I do not. <laughs> well, um, you know, in terms of playing devil's advocate, uh, you know, this system does potentially have some benefits according to local populations. So, um, so interviewing people who live in China, particularly people who live in rural areas, they they don't have credit cards. They don't have uh, any credit history. So, they see this as the only way or one of the ways that in the future they might have access to, you know, to government benefits or to like, you know, to banking loans. And, you know, they, you know, they do see it as kind of like a legitimate part of their economy and potentially, you know, access to, 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 to certain funds. But of course, you know, from human rights perspective <laughs> yeah. and from any other perspective, I any, mean, other any other perspective, <laughs> I mean, this is just problematic on so many levels. And the fact that, you know, potentially starting, you know, two years from now, if you're in China, you actually might be denied uh, a credit at a bank or you might be denied uh, access to certain government benefits because your social credit is low because like you potentially like wrote something against the government or, sure. yeah, you know, I mean, or, or did other things that uh, Communist Party finds opposing. We have opposing. seen periods exactly. of Chinese history where, exactly. you know, the how much how loudly you were and how loudly loyal right. you were to the party had very, very deadly That's serious right. implications. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So we'll see how this develops because, I mean, and I will say that, you know, the browsing history and, you know, some of these things are only one part of social credit score. So, you know, so like some of your financial transactions and, and you know, other data points, you know, are also part of it. So it's not that like, you know, it, it only zeroes so in. So like again, on to continue digging my own hole. So is the is it is it transparent what is going into the scoring system? Uh, not so. Uh, so not entirely yet. So basically several of Chinese domestic companies have uh, been tasked to essentially develop an algorithm. So, so Tencent and Alibaba have already started uh, implementing this through their own services and right. they're kind of like in the process of development. Okay. So then the Chinese government is hoping to learn from the experiment and then, you Great. know, okay. and I mean, then I know start that. Uh, so I, I guess I wanted to switch topics uh, a little bit. On your panel this morning, you mentioned something, hashtag poisoning, which is a term I had never heard before. I probably should have. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that is it's very interesting yeah absolutely so um as you know on twitter people will use hashtags to better sort and find information and uh, one of the things that we've seen uh, a lot of authoritarian governments doing lately is uh, essentially try to spam a particular hashtag with nonsense okay so then if you want to find pertinent information to let's say hashtag bahraini protests then like you're essentially going to find like posts about cat videos or or whatever. So then, like basically, you make that like you make that service and ability of people to find relevant tweets uh, more difficult. And this morning in the panel, I used the example of 
Mexico where uh, protesters, uh, anti-government protesters were essentially posting information about police brutality and they were posting very practical information at which streets and which checkpoints, you know, people were facing, you know, quite brutal response. So then other protesters could avoid it. And then the moment, you know, this information was being posted, you know, suddenly hashtag was being crowded by you know, anything, again, like from cat videos to, you know, mm. other like unnecessary and, and irrelevant information. So then like if you actually try to search through that hashtag, you couldn't find that info. And it really had real, real consequences, you know, again, like people getting beat up because they couldn't uh, get to it. So, so what do we do about this? Do you have at, do you think the platforms have certain responsibilities? Should they be doing more here? And I'd like to piggyback on that, actually, because, you know, we talked about the governments that are scoring especially highly or poorly on your tracking but where does the company come in and you know are the platforms are there some platforms that are being better or doing Ooh, better yeah. in tech freedom than others uh, so uh, so in terms of the governments uh, th themselves and what can be done uh, I think uh, a lot of this uh, activity particularly through hash hashtag poisoning comes through the use of bots mm -hmm. so I think what would be very helpful is for the tech companies to be more proactive as with labeling bot accounts as bot accounts. So I need a reputation tracking system for so, that. So, <laughs> uh, so you, you know, because it, I mean, it, there's there is no perfect way of identifying bot, bot accounts, but like there are quite a few kind of indicators, whether that be the frequency of tweeting or just like looking at the profile and the type of messaging and so forth. So it would be. Do helpful. you think that Twitter did a good? I know that Twitter got some flack from WikiLeaks fans for saying for the way that they categorized Russian bots as being basically. I think, I don't know if this is completely accurate, so it might be inaccurate, but they said that I think it was if you'd ever tweeted in Russian or tweeted from a Russian IP address or had a Russian account, then they flagged you or something. And that, that might be WikiLeaks spin. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, so I'm not exactly familiar with uh, that WikiLeaks allegation, but, you know, generally, uh, you know, there there are actually emerging programs out there that can identify bots. Hmm. So I think like the bigger point here is that you know a lot of the activity comes from bots. So it would be good to try to, uh, you know, to try to at least identify them. I think even kind of you know trying to eliminate bot activity might be uh, potentially problematic just sure. because you you really you know you don't want to give that responsibility to a company to, to actually determine for certain, you know, uh, whether something is a bot. But yeah, at least like if they leave, exactly, exactly. But at least if they label it and if there is then dispute mechanism that like if they actually misla mislabel you, then like you can appeal it. I think like that could be uh, one step forward. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of companies, you know, how they're performing. So I think that's a good question. And I think like there are some people here on uh, at the conference <laughs> who might be better equipped to uh, answer that because uh, my research focuses on the role of governments. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I will say that like if anything, some of the American uh, social media companies like, you know, like Facebook in particular, they have been trying to institute steps to combat this issue. And uh, we can't really say that for a lot of non-Western companies. So like, so for example, I, I mean, as you know, uh, in China, you know, the most popular social media companies are not, you know, Facebook and Twitter, they're blocked, but they're, you know, domestic alternatives. Right. And they're never going to do that kind of stuff because I mean, they, they essentially, you know, are 
obligated to governments to you know to uh, to to respond to you know whatever makes sense for, for the Chinese government. Similarly, you know, popular Russian social media network, whether that be We Contacte or uh, Yandex and so forth. I mean, you know, they're they're not doing anything. So you know, we are seeing some emerging and potentially good steps done by you know the likes of Facebook and Google. But you know, if anything. Um, I think like we, we essentially need to ensure that you know that some of the steps that are being taken by these companies that they're more widely adopted uh, across the industry. So I think we're running almost out of time here, okay. but uh, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I would love to continue <laughs> for another half hour if we had the opportunity. Um, I'm, I'm going to close on a rather open-ended question. I think uh, we talked about um, hashtag. Uh, Poisoning. Poisoning. Yes. <laughs> we talked about <laughs> hashtag poisoning, we talked about bots and surveillance. On the tech freedom uh, scorecard process, if you were to put your you know, predictor hat on or you know, a top-down view, what are the, the biggest threats or the biggest like, threat vectors, I guess, uh, to tech freedom? That's right. Well, you know, as I mentioned, like, we've seen uh, this rise of manipulation that is quite worrisome, whether that be through the use of pro-government commentators or political bots or fake news. And uh, to me, that's actually quite worrisome because uh, just because of the sheer nature of it and the number of people who are employed. And it's also not like a classical type of censorship. So mm -hmm. then like, it's difficult to combat it because like you can't say like, you know, uh, these commentators are not entitled to their own speech. So like it becomes really tricky kind of from the legislative perspective. But in terms of some of the other things, uh, for me, it's been quite worrisome to observe the number of internet shutdowns uh, going up over the past couple of years. So those would be the governments actually shutting down either internet or mobile connections uh, throughout the country or in part of the country. And, you know, I think like the whole world was outraged when that happened in Egypt, you know, um, it, six or seven years ago but like this has actually become Normalized. a worldwide trend yeah. so for example like we've actually observed that in that in 17 or 18 countries over the past year so uh so that's quite alarm yeah. alarming yeah we've also is, is america i mean do we have a strong foreign policy opinion on that that we are pushing and <laughs> so uh, so we we are so the u.s has been quite outspoken in terms of you know internet shutdowns not being a legitimate response uh but I, I can't think, think of honestly as connected as I am. I have a hard time imagining anything a little more terrifying than waking up and suddenly being disconnected from everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. And um, I think so. In some countries, this is obviously happening during the times of protests or during the times of elections. In some of the other countries, like it's been a little bit more difficult uh, because it does happen during the time of like national security crises and. Uh, we, we, from the human rights perspective, still see it as disproportionate response, mm -hmm. but it becomes like a little bit more difficult to actually advocate against that if, you know, if let's say the internet was shut down because, you know, there was a bomb threat, you know, that could have been, um, you know, that could have been initiated, you know, through like, let's say the use of uh, mobile internet or, mm -hmm. or something along those lines. But I mean, this is definitely something that's on the rise and it's quite alarming. Any final questions? Well, anything more uplifting to end on? Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say maybe we should ask a, a final, final question, saying where, what are the most, what are the reasons to be optimistic right now? Well, the reasons are that uh, as as we started this conversation, we do see incredible examples of internet activism, hmm. and you know whether that be for women's rights or 
for uh, religious and ethnic minorities, or even in terms of internet freedom, we're actually seeing now civil society becoming more adept in uh, understanding the internet policy and trying to combat when uh, negative legislation in their countries arises. And to me, that's quite promising. And I hope that as civil society, as well as the tech industry, learn to work together and as they identify that this is their common goal, that free and open internet is not just uh, civil society and human rights issue, but it's also an economy issue and commerce issue, that they will start working together and present a greater force for the future. Wow, what a great point to end on. Thank you so much, Sonia. Well, this has you. been an absolutely incredible discussion. Thank awesome, you. great.